Recently, uh, a visitor to the monastery asked a very obvious question, but not something that I had stopped to think about for a long while, and, and that is, what is meditation for anyway? And it was, I was glad to be asked, because uh, and we, we shared a useful discussion on the subject, and sometimes we, um, well, I know for myself, I, I can be putting all my attention into my own meditation and what I need to be doing and and so on. And, and it's also helpful, certainly if uh, in a situation like this where one's uh, talking about the value of meditation, the, to appreciate that that each of us will be engaging in meditation practice with a different different motivation different aspirations at different times and where we start off in practice uh, could change as the, as the months, years go by and and also uh, although there are times when, when we're feeling our practice is deepening and, and uh, perhaps uh, feeling confident about uh, our development and the path and it can also happen that sometimes we need to pull back and 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 perhaps uh, well shift change our our, our our attitude towards practice and I was going to say revert to a different stage of practice because in a way there can be stages, but perhaps to say revert is is not the right word because uh, we can never learn less in practice you know. But I do think that agility is very important to to be agile in our practice, not to have an idea about what practice means, uh, what meditation means, and to just merely keep mm, uh, hammering away at it. Mm. It's not really I uh, come across people who have done a meditation retreat somewhere, or they've read one book somewhere, and they have a view about what constitutes meditation and they're quite uh, shocked even uh, not an exaggeration to use that word quite shocked to hear that it's okay to be creative in practice now, sometimes we if we hear the teachings delivered with a lot of confidence and enthusiasm uh, and we're coming from a place of not knowing what we're doing just having a a feeling of, of really wanting to develop inwardly and being interested and, and so on, but feeling not to be able, well, we can uh, give away our authority. We can, uh, we can project onto the, the spiritual expert uh, uh, too much and, and take the, uh, or assume that this particular presentation is the only way. 
So I would encourage us as we, each of us, as we develop our practice, to be prepared to shift as and when it feels right, to not just hold to there's only one way of doing this. Um, It depends what's happening. And generally speaking, and and on this occasion when I was speaking with this person, what I I spoke about was that uh, for me there there are, generally speaking, three approaches or three ways of, 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 of practicing meditation or picking up meditation. The first one is where we're doing it because we're looking for just some help in learning how to relax, yeah. just for health reasons. It's quite normal and appropriate to use meditation just to get healthy. Um, and also, very normal and very appropriate to be using meditation in a way whereby we are specifically aiming at developing or growing certain abilities, certain skills. It's not just about relaxation or getting healthy, but we recognize a, a need to develop and hone down particular abilities and skills. And then there's uh, also a third aspect, which mm-hmm. uh, I would say is the the ultimate point of, of meditation practice, which I would say, I uh, use the word uh, uh, transformation, where we're really talking about a fundamental shift, yeah. moving from uh, into a totally different operating system, moving out of, it's like moving out of, out of Microsoft Windows into open source, or, but much greater. Yeah. A whole different operating system. And that's, that's quite different from for instance, using meditation for relaxation or using meditation for developing something like, for instance, uh, concentration. So I'd like to offer this this evening as a a, just as a a theme for your own contemplation, uh, appreciating that there are different stages of practice, different ways of engaging it, and we could be perhaps, you know, moving forward or we could be moving backwards. You know, sometimes there it can be the case that, that we think it's time to passionately engage in a practice uh, committed to transformation and, and we have tremendous effort and, and we're inspired by uh, hearing profound discourses by the greatest masters and, and, uh, and we're really going to go in there for the deepest insights and, and really all we need to do is relax a little bit and just take it easy. I've seen this happen, uh, not really in practice. Yeah. So on the level of relaxation, and, and to not dismiss that as, as just being a beginner's level of practice. And the, uh, you, you've heard me talk about and encourage you to go and sit in the new garden down at Kusla House, Bojunga Garden. And you see that there's Bojunga Garden because there's seven seats in Bojunga Garden. There's, there's Sati, there's Dhammarichya, there's Virya, there's Piti, there's Pasati, there's Samadhi and Zupeka. Now Pasati, I, I, I translate that as, uh, as relaxation. Yeah, sometimes it would be translated as tranquility. But I see it, there's, there's one seat down there, you go and sit in tranquility in a relaxation seat and, and see how you feel. And it's a, it's a particular uh, uh, ability 
that we need to develop. Need do we need to be able to be at ease? And so uh, it's fine to really put time into learning how to just be comfortable. Yeah. Now, if we're overly idealistic in our practice, yeah, we can even the suggestion of trying to be comfortable, you know, brings up a sense of embarrassment. So, oh, I want to go for it. I don't want to waste my life. You know, I want to you know, do the real thing. And well, that's that may be uh, wonderful to want to do the real thing. And uh, of course, none of us want to waste our life. But it's like I was saying uh, last week that it doesn't matter how hungry you are, you know, if you speed when you go into the supermarket, you know, that can be dangerous. You know, there is an appropriate speed to drive as we go to the supermarket to get some food to deal with the hunger problem. Well, likewise, in this path of practice of uh, complete realization, there is an appropriate disposition and, and, and to remember the ability to relax, to really unplug, to really be at ease, to really be contented. Mm-hmm. We can, we can miss this point and, and feel convinced that striving to achieve a goal is the way and to overcome our obstructions. But such a, an attitude can also be stirring the mind up a lot. Now, some I recommend people come to me with their <coughs> meditation problems. I, I just, why don't you just go and take a bath, you know? Get some nice essential oils and light a candle and, and put on some new age music. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not altogether kidding. I'm not talking to monks when I say that. I mean, uh, monks can have a bath if they want and, and some essential oils. We've got some nice essential oils there. We have a sauna, actually. I don't know if you knew that. We, we do. We have a sauna. In Pali, the sauna is called Jantagara. The Buddha recommends saunas. And they're a very good thing for your health. You know, if we're not healthy... <clears throat> Our practice is going to be perhaps unnecessarily difficult. And Ajahn Chah, he, was, uh, he used to encourage us to have saunas in our monastery in England, in Thailand. And we had very beautiful saunas, still do, very nice. Even though you think, oh, in Thailand, what do you want a sauna for? It's so hot anyway. Well, you have a really good sauna and you have a good sweat and it's just the whole body relaxes and get out there, throw some cold water over and get one of those gourds and scrub yourself down and rub on some oil and get back in there and have another good sweat and it comes wonderful, really invigorating and so having a sauna and having a shower or having a bath with some nice essential oils and relaxing uh, or meditating in the bath you can meditate in the bath fine, or meditate lying down again sometimes you think oh the real meditation you know, just got like that posture sitting upright and like the Buddha image up here Ajahn Chah, he told us, he says, don't try and be a Buddha. I mean, she says, be an earthworm. He said, if you want to emulate something, emulate an earthworm. I remember he was giving us this day. He's very kind, very... He saw all these Western monks who were sitting there, super serious, trying to crack it. And, uh, and he was just smiling and laughing and just saying, well, you know, guys, don't, don't try and be like that with big golden Buddha. And she says, don't be like that. Just be like an earthworm. Just sort of munch away at the darkness in front of you well likewise with sometimes with our 
our determinations to overcome things, we, we can be perhaps going too fast. And so the aspect of meditation, which is just about being healthy, is not to be bypassed. It's very uh, suitable just also in this, you know, developing right posture for the sake of being healthy. Again, sometimes it's so we, we can be so interested in our minds, so obsessed, fascinated uh, by our, watching ourselves. It's like looking in the mirror, absolutely fascinated by our face. Well, sometimes that's what is going on in meditation. People are just looking at their mind, completely unaware of this whole experience here. They're just fascinated by how interesting their minds are. And that's not necessarily uh, mindfulness. And so in support of, of right practice, there is an encouragement to be aware of the posture. And you can experience real physical benefits if you're sitting upright with you know, the head gently balanced, and relaxed on the shoulders, the chest open, the jaw relaxed, and the belly relaxed. And just really sitting there, really centered and anchored on the floor. And, and then you notice the breathing settles down into the belly. You know, the lower part of the spine falls forward and there's deep, deep in breathing. And, and if you sit like that, even if you, you know, don't necessarily have any great insight, you, know, you come out after you feel enlivened and refreshed and relaxed. So it's perfectly valid to approach practice like that. But as we all know, that that's not the only point of meditation. Yeah. We can be uh, specifically developing or cultivating uh, spiritual faculties or abilities, like like discernment, like like faith, like confidence, like trust, um, concentration, mindfulness. You know. The, We all know that the, uh, you know, the Buddha encouraged this practice of mindfulness and, and uh, it would be unfortunate just to assume that what we've got is as good as it gets. You know, there is the uh, clear uh, encouragement to cultivate bhavana, you know, to bhavana, to really develop. And so to have the idea, to have the perception of ourselves as developing Spiritual abilities is appropriate. And we can develop awareness and we can assess our awareness. How are we doing? Yeah. Is our awareness strong? Yeah. Our mindfulness, is it strong? Or does it just come and go like during a period of meditation to have a, have a reading? How much mindfulness is there? There's not much mindfulness, basically dreaming most of the time. Okay, well, that assessment. Oh, mindfulness is increasing. That's good. That's good. Oh, mindfulness is increasing. Or concentration. You know, how steady, you know, to like our attention. Now, mindfulness and, 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 and concentration are very different faculties. You know, we, sometimes we forget this. Uh, this watchfulness, which is mindfulness, is, I always use the, the image of the, uh, the clerk in the, in, the, in the hotel, the reception desk. You've got the clerk there who just watches who comes, checks them in, and up they go to the room. The clerk doesn't go up to the room. That's the, that's the, the concierge takes them up to the room. 
and the clerk doesn't go out to the street to get the taxi. That's the doorman does that. And the clerk is there watching, checking whoever comes in and say, you go, it's your room. And they go out and say, goodbye, hello, goodbye. And your clerk doesn't have an opinion about who comes and goes. That's not the clerk's job. The clerk's just to watch, to notice who comes and where they go. And that's watchfulness, that's mindfulness. Now, concentration is something else. The steadiness of attention is something we can also develop. Quite clearly, we need to develop this. It's like our attention is like light, that if it's dissipated, and well, it's kind of okay maybe to get around, but if we really focus light down, well, it becomes a very different sort of, has a very different functioning. And so it is with the work of our practice, uh, the, the things we want to see. We want to see beyond the everyday common and garden variety perception that we have of the world. We want to understand the world. We want to really see through the world, see through the delusions, see through the things we get fooled by over and over again, see through our habits, be free from the conditioning. How do we do that? Well, we need to be able to really investigate. We need to have a steadiness of attention. And so this is something we can cultivate. Now, if we're overly idealistic, like I remember um, somebody asked Ajahn Chah this question, we were sitting talking, and, and they said, how can, how can there be somebody concentrating, or how can you concentrate on the meditation object if there isn't anybody there? You know, there's no self, so how can you concentrate? And then she said, oh, very good question. Very good question. He said, it's like, you know, summertime we pass an hour. That's what this is. Summertime, yeah, it's concentration. You're learning how to hold the mind steady on an object, concentrating. Yeah, concentrating. It is me concentrating. He said, it's like, it's like summertime is like having your potatoes and we pass is like cooking them. You know, they're a different function. But you can't cook potatoes if you haven't got any. You know, we can't do the investigation if we haven't got some concentration. Hmm. But if we're overly idealistic, we can, we can get caught up and say, I just want the vipassana, I don't want the concentration because there's no self and I don't want to fall into the delusion of there being a self. You know, that's a terrible mistake. And so you know, I'm just going to investigate, investigate. But we can be busy trying to do investigation and dissecting things and trying to let go of things and so on. But there isn't any steadiness. There's no stability of mind. And so there is, uh, uh, it's very important that we spend time on just cultivating this steadiness of mind, not trying to understand things, not trying to let go of things, not trying to get anywhere or dissolve things, but just appreciating that if we don't have the, the strength and the steadiness of attention, then we're not going to be able to do the work. So there's a, a time to cultivate Concentration, discernment. We can be just following the conditioned habits and like the views and opinions that we have about things. Or like, for instance, assessing, assessing how well we're practicing. How do we assess how well we're practicing? We've got to use this ability we have to analyze, to discriminate. And so we remember, well, last time my mindfulness wasn't very good, and this time it's even worse. And so we can assess that. But if we're not careful, what kicks in then is just a whole load of judgment. Just saying, well, I'm hopeless. I've been meditating all these years, and I I should know better than this. And Well, is that discernment? 
that's just following our conditioning. And so we say, all right, we can exercise discernment. We can how to how to analyze, how to consider, how to consider: is my practice developing, or is my practice not developing? Or the quality of our awareness: you know, is it here and now? Is it here and now awareness, or is it lost in the past and lost in the future, or is it? Is it there is a certain sort of heedless here and nowism? Now, this is the new, is a new religion called here and nowism, where as if the past and the future don't exist at all and not relevant, and all we're doing is here and now. And sometimes I know when I talk about establishing ourselves in a here and now awareness, that uh, that people think that we're not supposed to think about the past or think about the future. Well, that's certainly not what the Buddha was talking about. They would uh, emphasize how we need to learn from the past. We need to exercise our discernment to see, well, in the past this happened, this happened, this happened. And we can learn from that. Yeah. Maybe last time we, tried, we meditated, we, we tried too hard. You know, we used all this force and, you know, because we thought we were going to get somewhere. But actually it didn't really work and so we need to pull back. And so that's discernment. Or you know, the, the future. We mustn't think about the future. The teacher always talks about being here and now. Well, there can be, he- as I said, a heedless here and nowism, where we're basically holding to the idea of here and now in a way that denies us the benefit of learning from the past and planning for the future. Yeah. The, uh, the ability we have to, to remember the past and extrapolate on the future helps, helps us be here and now, and in a here and now quality of attention, which means that we can effectively pay attention to what's going on in this reality, which is always here and now. And so we can develop our discernment. We can see, is this discernment polluted by just conditioned judgments, views and opinions about how things should and shouldn't be? Or are we getting free from this? So in other words, we're cultivating discernment. And last week, there was a question about somebody uh, feeling that they were uh, burdened by all the regret and remorse from past actions. And, and I, I spoke about how we can uh, cultivate, uh, the, to cultivate forgiveness. See what's happened as what's happened and move on. Yeah. I didn't use the word forgiveness, but that was really what we're talking about you know, that whether it's with regards to others or with regards to ourselves, to the, to cultivate forgiveness. And this is something that we can really, you know, some people might say, oh, I just can't forgive, as if that's a fixed position. You know, we hear this many, many times. It's always uh, terribly sad, I find, when I hear that. I, uh, I think I've mentioned before that, that interview on the radio of a few years ago when there was a... Um, a vicar who uh, lost her partner in the uh, the bombings, the train bombings in London, and she resigned from her position as a vicar because she said that she could never forgive the bombers. And uh, that's a terribly sad thing. Now, of course, when tragic loss and, 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 and such pain uh, comes to us, we're not going to forget it. But what we can do, what we really can do, even if it's very difficult, we st- what we still can do is see that there's a difference between having a memory of being hurt 
and investing ill will in that memory. We are not obliged to invest ill will. We're not obliged to invest resentment in our pain. You know, the pain can be there, the memory can come up of the pain, but we're not obliged to invest negativity in that. And, and that, so this is something we can cultivate. The, the good news is that we can remember all that's happened to us in the past and realize that we have this power, we have this ability to withhold the impulse, to restrain the impulse, to invest negativity in it. And then we experience forgiveness, not forgetfulness. You know, that's the, some painful things that we're not going to forget. But the past is gone. You know, we can't change the past. But we don't have to invest negativity in the past. And that, so this is, again, something we can cultivate. Cultivating forgiveness. Cultivating compassion. Again, we, something we talked about a lot. Some people uh, don't have a lot of good feeling about themselves or about life. And, and then they hear the Buddha's encouragement for cultivating loving-kindness. And... Um, Monks and nuns and Buddhist teachers are always going on about how important metta practice is, and you read the scriptures, and and it was obviously a very important part of the Buddhist teachings. And yet, if you don't have any good feelings about yourself or life, then to sit there and try and do this meditation that we're supposed to do, may I abide in well-being, yeah? may all beings be well, when you just you don't feel like that, and you can hammer away at it for a very long time trying to make yourself feel good about something, and you don't. You just feel worse because you can't even feel, can't do loving-kindness. You're so hopeless. You're such a complete failure, you can't even practice loving-kindness. Well, uh, that's not the only teaching the Buddha gave. It's also the, the, the next Brahma-vihara, the cultivation of compassion. And the image that the Buddha gives us in encouraging the cultivation of compassion is imagine the feeling a mother has when she's with her only child and the child is is suffering from writhing in bed with a fever. Yeah. Now, what 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 does that feel? That she's not saying, saying, "May all beings be well." You know, she doesn't have that. What she has is an empathy for the suffering she's suffering with the child, and this heartful, selfless wish: "May this child be free from suffering." Now, that's that's it's a subtle but a very different, nuanced feeling. May they be free from suffering. And so it doesn't matter how bad you're feeling, if you're really feeling bad, what you can bring to mind is somebody you care about, and there's got to be somebody on the planet that you care about, and if you imagine them having the suffering you've got, then immediately your heart opens up just a little bit, and the, the wish comes out spontaneously, the genuine, unsynthesized, the genuine, compassionate feeling of, may they not experience the suffering that I'm having. Yeah. That's compassion. And that becomes our meditation object. And we can focus on that, that feeling here, physically manifest feeling of warmth, of caring. May they be free from suffering. And it's a very beautiful feeling. May they be free. May this person not experience the pain of disappointment, loss, despair, distress, sadness, frustration, anger that I'm feeling. May they not have this suffering because this is so bad. I know what it's like. I'm experiencing it. May they not have it. And then the trick is to cultivate, to use the conscious intention to in, bring your imagination around to various other people. You know, it's looking around, you're seeing people you don't have any particular positive or negative feelings about, but you can imagine they too, like this person here. 
you know, the postman, he, he suffers. You know, if, if he was having this feeling that I've got, he'd be in a bad state. And wish for them, may they be free from suffering. And then, in a rather devious way, you can bring it around until you end up just very sneakily wishing, may I be free from suffering too. And boop, the magic happens. It happens. It can happen. And you can actually, perhaps for the first time in a very long time, genuinely wish for yourself that you be free from suffering. Because you, this self, is just like any other imagined self. We're all just selves, all just imagined beings. And this one and that one and all of them are all equally worthy of this this quality of well-wishing. So it's how to do it. And uh, so there is a way of cultivating. Um, and we can, if we do get a feeling for this way of cultivating, you know, the heart becomes wonderfully soft and, 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 and energized and nourished. And whatever suffering you're feeling, meet it with this. May I be free from suffering. And then you start thinking, oh, I don't deserve it because, you know, I should be thinking about other people be free from suffering. So, well, there you are, suffering again. Meet it with, may I be free from this suffering too. May I be free from all suffering. There's no suffering that we cannot wish that we be free from. We are perfectly entitled to. It's the perfectly appropriate thing to do, to wish that we be completely free from suffering, all suffering, of every sort, on every level, throughout all time, and mean it. This is cultivation. Now, so all of these qualities we can be intentionally cultivating. However, this is, uh, as I'm sure we all understand, this is not the ultimate point of meditation either. Very important, and that's what we're doing a lot of the time. But what the Buddha was very clear about was that so long as there's still somebody here who thinks they've got to grow something, somebody who's got to develop Somebody's got to go somewhere. Somebody's got to get rid of something. So long as there are such perceptions and we believe in such perceptions, then we're not at the heartwood of the Bodhi tree. Yeah, we're still in the sapwood, or perhaps moving a little closer, but we're not at the heartwood. The heartwood of the Bodhi tree, the heartwood, the core of the wood is teaching, as I said, was it wasn't about cultivation or development wasn't just about relaxation, important as those things are, but it was about an actual transformation. With cultivation, yeah, there can be there can be an alteration of mind states. You can develop a little concentration and and bypass the, you know, the miserable conditioning of the of the mind and and drop into something that's temporarily rather lovely. And there's an altered state of consciousness. And for that matter, you can even take a few chemicals. And uh, Ajahn Abhinanda, just, he had an altered state of consciousness in hospital a few days ago. And when I went to see him, he was so lovely. I mean, well, he's always lovely. Well, that's not quite true. He's usually lovely. Um, well, he's always lovely on a certain level. But uh, on Monday and Tuesday, he was manifestly very lovely. But then he was mainlining morphine. You know, he was in an altered state of consciousness. But I'm very sorry to say, he's come back and he's not enlightened. Um, but last Monday he looked a lot more like it. Uh, he was very lovely and, and very radiant and, and positive about everything. Um, even though he just said his guts cut open, he was in a, in a very beautiful state of mind. That was an alteration of consciousness, chemically induced. Well, likewise, it, even you know, proximity to a great being could bring about an alteration of, of consciousness. Uh, 
not to mention the various uh, tricks and antics that we can get up with uh, in our practice that bring about alteration. But what the Buddha was talking about was ultimately not just altering our states of mind, but a total transformation. And the total transformation means that the very sense of being somebody is undermined. Yeah. And now we perhaps read the Buddha's teachings or we hear about this, these talks and, and we can get overly interested in it because it's fascinating. Uh, or perhaps we, you know, we, we already don't like ourselves so much so the idea of doing away with ourselves spiritually could be quite attractive. So we want to approach the Buddha's teachings on anatta very intelligently, very cautiously, and, and take on the contemplation hear what the Buddha was saying about the insubstantiality of this apparent self, the sense of me. And and I would say, my understanding is the encouragement is to get interested in the reality of it. Interested in the reality of it. And have a healthy suspicion about who is this me anyway. Yeah. In one situation, this me can be so, so confident, so clear, and, and so calm. And then in another situation, this this me is not that confident and clear and calm anyway, so which is the real me? Or maybe when you wake up first thing in the morning and you know you haven't had a shower yet or you haven't had a coffee or or whatever, you you wake up in the morning and you can barely walk straight, you know. And that's me fumbling around and well then later on there's a me who's maybe in front of a whole bunch of people or if you're a teacher or you're you're a therapist or you're a you know, whatever your job is, you're giving out orders all over the place, well, which is the real me? Yeah. Or you, you, you're happy or you're sad. Yeah. A great friend, good friend turns up and we're happy, and that's me, I have no doubt about it. I'm, I'm really happy when I see a good friend and a warmth and a gladness and a joy, and I am happy. And if somebody comes and tells me, oh, you're really sad and depressed, <laughs> no, I'm not. I know, I am happy. But then if I get some bad news, you know, and, and the loss of a, of a dear friend, yeah, I can, right now I can think of an experience of great loss and and, and terrible sense of sadness, and, and a real feeling of, of despair. And there's no doubt about it. Somebody comes to me and says, oh, you're obviously happy today. Like, no way. No, I am sad. No doubt about it. So where, where's the real me in this? Or the physical me, you know, when I'm sound asleep at night and I'm lying on my bed there, somebody comes and looks at me and there's just this kind of thing that looks like a corpse. Inside I'm busy going around the universe, getting up to all sorts of things. Is that me, the one that's off there doing things during my sleep, or is this me, this blob laid out on his pillow dribbling? Very unattractive. Well, I don't like to think of myself as a dribbling blob, but uh, if somebody did see me, well, you know... Look at Ajmanendo, God, what a wreck. Yeah. Well, m- maybe I'm having a good time inside. Well, where's the real me? Who is the real me? Who? Who is it who thinks that they're so terribly important? Yeah. And where does this who start and where does it finish? Like in this body. Am I inside my body or am I a little bit outside my body? Or how can I say this is my body? If this is really me, how can I see it anyway? You know, all my moods. I'm in a very good mood today. Who knows you're in a good mood? Now, if I am the mood, I find this, I find this absolutely riveting. 
If I am the mood, how can I reflect and articulate about that mood? Or I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I feel very uncomfortable about something. If I am that uncomfortable feeling, then how can I be separate from it and talk about it? You know, there's got to be some separate. It's not me. These moods are not me. This body's not me. So who is this me? It sure feels like there's somebody here. It really does. You know, if somebody, somebody dismisses me as insignificant, irrelevant, nobody, yeah, the chances are the equanimity will be ruffled. Yeah, there's a good chance of being, yeah, I'll, I'll notice, I, feel. who is that? Very good question. Well, my understanding of what the Buddha was, was encouraging was for us to get interested in that, not to get overly zealous about trying to undermine it and get rid of it and overcome it. It's a delusion. I've got to prove to myself I don't exist. Uh, you get interested in it. And, and, uh, and as our practice develops, then, then the experience of conviction that we have about the apparent solidity and substantiality of meanness starts to get undone. Maybe uh, there may be occasions when it gets seriously undone. You know, there can be a, a real major falling away, a real major opening up, and a whole new perspective. And and that uh, that could be wonderful, that could be very inspiring, or it could be absolutely scare the hell out of you. Uh, not 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 a sure thing. So if we're in too much of a hurry to engage in this transformation process, well, we might get a little shock. Uh, also, though, if uh, we're not at all motivated to uh, engage in, the, in, the, in the, this level of practice, well, while we're busy developing and cultivating and growing spiritually, we might also be growing just a bigger, fat, oversized spiritual ego. Yeah. So that's, that's quite possible. So uh, in the Buddha's presentation of the the place of meditation, I, I think uh, this is a, a valid enough way to view it. That, uh, yes, there is a time for just seeing meditation as, as relaxation, health, ease, feel good about life. You know, on Asala Puja a couple of days ago, we were talking about the Buddhist discourse and, and the initiating the turning of the wheel of, of truth, the wheel of Dhamma, Dhamma Chakrapawatana Sutta, and the Buddha delivered on that occasion. The Four Noble Truths wasn't something that he just hit you with as soon as you went to see him. If you went to go and see the Buddha, he didn't just zap you with the Four Noble Truths. Rather, he checked you out and said, is this person ready? He he, he talks about it in scriptures. He saw somebody wasn't ready yet, so he gave them a graduated teaching, helping them to... to, uh, to develop a sense of well-being, of contentment, of ease. And he talks about it. And so to some people, he would just tell them how to get reborn in the Dewa realms. He didn't tell them about the Four Noble Truths. He just said, well, you do this, this, and this, and in your next life, you get reborn in the Dewa realms. That's a good thing to do. You should cultivate sila, keep, keep the precepts, cultivate generosity. So it's not the case that uh, we're always in the right frame of mind to be uh, delving into the, the deepest uh, aspects of our deluded conditioning and, and trying to reach the goal. Sometimes what's called for is just learning how to feel good about life and just be a happy somebody. 
we don't have to attain the state of profound nobodyhood immediately. It's great just to be a happy, contented somebody. Yeah. And to develop the spiritual faculties, yes, to recognize there is, relatively speaking, a somebody here who's got something to do. Yes, there's me and I've got all sorts of faults. Yeah, we're overly idealistic. Well, there's nobody here, there's nothing to do. So, well, yeah, you might trip over your shoelaces if you think like that. Yeah. Relatively speaking, it's appropriate to assume the validity of this somebody and to make it a happy, relaxed, contented, determined, focused, strong, confident somebody. However, of course, uh, uh, behind all of this is the, the basic uh, teachings that the Buddha gave us, that there isn't anybody. Uh, so the kind of effort that we're making is a relaxed, easeful effort. It's focused, it's developed, it's mature, it's conscious. But really we need to be working towards a kind of, if you like, effortless effort, yeah. where the, the, even the feeling of me making the effort to develop spiritually is not something we take too seriously, yeah. just seriously enough. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Um, the way, uh...